0: My name is Evan, I'm one of the pastors, so I'm just grateful to have some time with you this morning. I, uh, I was five years old, and I remember um, going to bed one night, and I asked my parents a question. My parents would typically put me to bed, they would come in, and pray for me, and say good night. And I don't know, this is kind of a tricky time, so if you're a parent, you kind of know what I'm about to get at. It's a little tricky time, because as a five-year-old, I remember always wanting to ask a lot of questions when I was supposed to be going to bed. I don't know, why is that? My kids do the same thing to me today. Stacy and I will put our kids to bed, and all of a sudden, there's like 5, five 10, 15 questions that they just want to like ask us when they're supposed to be going to bed. So I realize I'm no different. So I don't know if my motivation for asking my mom this question as she was putting me to bed one night when I was about 5 years old. I don't know if my motivation was solely just because I had this deep yearning to know the things of God, but or if I wanted to partly still stay awake. I don't know. But what I do know is I did this question weighed on me. I said, "Mom, how do I know I'm saved?" See, I grew up in the church, even as a young kid. I was around the teachings of Jesus, and I'd go to church every week, and I'd be a part of the, the church Sunday school things like that. And so something was going on in my little head and heart, but that as I was five years old, I remember poignantly going, Oh man, like how do I, how do I know that I'm saved? And what that began for me, and maybe some of you can relate to this, was a series of asking God over and over and over again to come into my heart, because I was so concerned that I knew that Jesus, he's like, he loved me and he could hear me, but he had a lot of people he was caring for. It's like billions of people, and I knew that. I was like, well, what, what if he forgot? So uh, let me pray again, let me pray again, just in case he's really busy, just wanna help him out, and I was also petrified, because I was like, I just wanted to know, how am I saved And perhaps in the room this morning, some of you have had that same question. Like, how how do I know if I'm saved? And maybe some of you are in the room this morning, and you would even call yourself a follower of Jesus right now, and maybe you're checking out the claims of Christianity, and so you just come in, and you're just going like, well, I'm curious what it is you believe about this God of the Bible and what he says about life and death and all of the things about faith. How do you know that you're saved? Our text this morning, the letter of James that we've been going through, I believe is going to clearly help us answer that question. How do I know I'm saved? Over the past several weeks, we've been studying this letter And the whole book of James is really this very practical letter that's written to a bunch of people, Jewish Christians at the time. That's really important. It'll be important again in our text today. But he's writing to people who are struggling. And he's writing very practical advice and exhortations to these people. And he's telling them, listen, basically, God's people should be like God. We're supposed to be like him. We aren't God, but we're supposed to be like him. And so over the past several weeks, what we've seen is James gets very, very practical. And he says, the way you become like God is you relate to each other, like this horizontal relationship. You relate to one another the way God, and in the vertical relationship, he relates to you. So you love your neighbor as yourself. And James has been hammering over and over again, just practically what it means to love God, what does it look like? And last week, if you were with us, you saw in the beginning of chapter two that we're not to show any partiality amongst God's people. There's literally nothing that should cause us to ever want to separate from other people because of how they look, what they think, what they do, what they don't do. God says, show no partiality because why we're supposed to relate to one another the way God relates to us and he shows no partiality. But today, as we continue in the book of James, we're gonna get a clear understanding from James. What does saving faith look like? So if you have your Bible, I encourage you, open it to James chapter two, verse 14. It'll be on the screen, and we'll read that together. And there's two things that we're gonna see. James is gonna show us two things. What dead faith is, and what saving faith is. Now let me define very quickly before we start. Dead faith, according to James, as we will read this over and over again. Dead equals useless. That's what he means. Dead faith, useless faith. He's gonna show us an example of that. And then he's gonna show us an example of saving faith. Now what I realized I just did, if you picked up, I looked at this group and said, dead, useless faith. And I looked at this group and I said, saving faith. I'm not showing partiality here. I just wanna be clear. James chapter 2, verse 14. It'll be on the screen. Let's read that. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but he does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also... And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Father, I just simply ask that you just help us to see what saving faith is today. Father, I just beg you to encourage and maybe even challenge those of us in this room who need to be Encouraged or challenged of what saving faith in you really looks like. God, help me, help us submit to your word this morning. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. We remember, in fact, some of you who have been following with this series are probably hearing the echoes of James chapter 1 in your head as we finish this, where it says in James chapter 1, verse 22, he says, Be doers of the word, not hearers only deceiving yourselves. And our text this week is joined by what we looked at last week when there was a warning. James gives a warning of judgment to the people of God, judgment. Literally, we looked at Matthew 25 where Jesus is separating the sheep and the goats, people who would say with their mouth, Lord, Lord, when did we see you? And James is saying, again, in light of that Here's what saving faith will look like contrasted to dead, useless faith. Great, so James' point to us this morning is that you and I will know that we're saved, that Christ Jesus himself dwells within us when the aim of our lives is to love one another as God loves us. These are gonna be the works that James speaks of that shows what faith produces. So let's look at that. I want to just put on the screen, what does dead or useless faith look like? It'll be on the screen, and it's pretty simple. Dead faith looks like knowing your neighbor, knowing them, but not loving them. Dead or useless faith looks like knowing God, knowing things about God as well, but not loving him, not doing anything for him. And James is gonna give us two examples of dead or youthless faith. In this first example that we see, he's gonna ask us a couple questions, but what we're gonna see is that dead faith is characterized by a person who knows someone else's condition, we understand it, we know it, and yet we don't do anything anything active towards caring for that person's condition. It means that they're just simply going to talk about God's blessings and longings for them, but not doing anything to step towards and help. What good is it, my brothers? Verse 14 If someone says he has faith, but he does not have works, can that faith save him? And here's the question, here's the example that gets brought up, and this is going to be an example amongst the church, so it'd be like Grace Hill, James is writing to you and me at Grace Hill, and he's asking us this question, so that's our context to think through. If a brother or sister, meaning someone in our church, is Poorly clothed and lacking in daily food. And one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body. What good is that? James is saying we know this person. We see them every week. They lack proper clothing. They don't have what they need to live and survive. Like, he's saying, you all know this. And here's what you do. You know their condition. You're aware of it. You're in close proximity to them. And here's what you do, church. God's blessings over you, brother or sister. Be well. What good is that? See, the other part of dead faith that James says, was useless faith, is you know what God wants you to know. You know things about God. It says in the text, peace. Jewish Christians would know what this peace is, the shalom of God, the well-being of each other, and God's blessings, provision, and care that would be physically manifested towards one another. They would know what that meant. And they say, peace, God's well-being for you, but do nothing to help the one in their midst. James says, you don't love them. Love is tied to action. James is saying when discussing work, the word for work, the Greek word ergon, it's a plural word and it's a very general word for works. It's plural, so it's, it's not a specific one. It's general, so it's, it covers all sorts of ways to work and activity and things like that. And we see this in other places of the New Testament as well. This is a very general point. So there's not one thing that we're supposed to do, it's supposed to be many things because there's many needs, there's many activities that. God's grace is supposed to be enacted in and through in us towards one another. And so he says here, love is tied to action. Here we see a warning to you and me, church, a warning of what is useless, dead faith. We see that engagement towards one another only goes so far as merely speaking things about God for God to one another but there's no action towards the other. Jesus' words in Matthew 7, 7. James would be clearly remembering. His readers would be remembering and you and I would do well to remember. Matthew 7, 7 says, so whatever you wish that others would do to you Do also, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. That's what James picked up on last week. The, what we're gonna be judged under, the law of liberty, the royal law, what Jesus said, the two greatest commandments, love God and love your neighbor as yourself. These people in the church have basic needs. They're inside the church family, not outside. And James is saying to those, remember, these are people who themselves are being persecuted. They have been suffering with poverty themselves. They've been dealing with famine. They've been pushed out of their homes. These are people in need too. But he's saying in the midst of even your needs, are you not going to give even from what you have? He's saying, no, no, no. Grace Hill, Jewish Christians at the time, wherever you're reading this letter, that is not genuine faith to withhold from other people. See, we have two main resources, time and money. There are others. But James is pressing, I think, you and me today. We have time and we have money. And those are the two things for every one of us that I believe are going to show what we really believe and love. And that's what James is getting at here. Even in Evan, your need, there's things you might need. But with what you have been given, will you also go and even share what the little you do have with those who have less than you? Or will I do be afraid and fear and think more of myself than I think of someone else? That's his point here. Genuine faith moves towards others in action. If you want to know what saving faith looks like, it will be literally showing Compassion. He says, don't give them words. Useless faith is knowing your neighbor, but not loving them. It's knowing who God is and things about him, but not loving him either. The second example we see here is what another one of part of what useless faith looks like. This example is gonna show us someone with a dead faith can know right theological knowledge about God. This one is going to hit home for a lot of us. It certainly is gonna hit me. Good theology is not an end of itself. Good, right theology and doctrine is not an end of itself. That is what James is saying. Why why do I say that? Because good theology, good doctrine, right doctrine, the right things of God always moves out into action and compassion towards other people. That's what good theology should always do, always. James knows that. Love, joy, peace, patience, good theology, right doctrine moves into bearing those kind of works and characteristics in our lives not merely just knowing it. Where do I see this? Verse 18 says, but some will say, you have faith and I have works. James says, show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Shots fired. Shots fired for all of us in this room. James says, you can know the Shema, Deuteronomy 6, 4, hero Israel, the Lord God, the Lord is one. And he's saying, even the demons know that. How many in our churches proclaim with their mouths how great God is how worthy he is, and yet that is as far as it goes. We merely sing and say, but we don't do. It doesn't produce anything else. You do well. Even the demons believe that. Stunning. Stunning. How many say in the church, I don't need what God wants from me. I don't need to do what God says for me to do. I don't need that. I know what He says. I know I have faith. I know good theology. I listen to sermons every day. I have a quiet time, and yet I only know and I never love other people. James says, No, no, that is not genuine saving faith, friend. That's useless. The demons give us a stunning example of what many of us might be in danger of. Shuddering, that means that they're in fear, and so that word fear is used all over the scriptures, and there is this right awe and reverence and fear of a holy God, and yet we know as Christians, we don't need to stand in fear of God because of his righteousness through his son Jesus, so we stand there. But it's the picture he gives Perhaps, and these are my words, this is no one else's, perhaps shuddering could even be representative of, I hear you, God, but I don't like it. Shuddering, I shudder at things I don't like. Oh, I heard you. No, 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 no. But I'm not going to do what it is you said I should do. Dead faith looks like someone who knows a lot about God and even believes in him but shows no fruit in their life, no care for the poor, no compassion for those around us, no gentleness, no mercy towards the down and out all around us. I say this again. Dead faith looks like knowing your neighbor but not loving them. Dead faith looks like knowing who God is but not loving him either. Now what does saving faith look like? James gives us this example. Saving faith looks like the opposite of this you know your neighbor and you love them and you know who God is and you love God. I want us to see in the Old Testament where this understanding of a saving faith comes from. James is not making this up. James knows his Torah very, very, very well. And so if you look at Ezekiel 36, 26 through 27, you will see exactly where this understanding of what a saving faith looks like tied to works. We'll see it on the screen. Ezekiel 36, 26 through 27. This is the Lord speaking. I'll give you a new heart and a new spirit. And a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and then give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and listen to this and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And we get two examples of exactly what James means from this. And he's going to show us Abraham and Rahab. Two stunning examples for you and me this morning. Look with me at verse 21 as we look at the example of saving faith through Abraham's life. Example for us of what it means to have saving faith, to answer that question that my five-year-old self asked, and even still to this day sometimes, God, am I saved? James uses Abraham as this example of saving faith because Abraham's faith, get this, here it is, it was accompanied by works. Abraham's life was transformed by God, and from that transformation, he had a new way of life that worked itself out in actions towards God and towards other people. In other words, he was obedient to the rules of God. He knew God, what he said, and he loved God through how he acted. Saving faith results in living for God. Doing works. Loving God the most. Here's the example. And some of you, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, you know why he uses Abraham as the example. What was Abraham promised? What was Abraham and Sarah promised? They promised a son. But you know what Sarah's womb was described as? Barren. You could also use the word useless. It didn't work. And what was God's promise to them? I will give you a son. I will give you a son. And the example shows us that Abraham, his faith moved in action to take the most precious thing to him, the thing that God promised him, Years and years and years and years and years and years of waiting, God then required that very thing, Isaac, his promised son, he required that from Abraham to be sacrificed to him on an altar. The most precious thing to him and Sarah. Like, I realize this is Father's Day. It's not lost on me. I'm a dad of two boys. You don't even need to be a parent to get the gravity and feel the weight of what God is requiring of Abraham. And yet we see Abraham's faith, equal action, love for God. Abraham knew God. He believed God. He loved God. And his works James' point, demonstrated what was already a reality for Abraham. What do we see? Genesis 15, 6 says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him, counted to him as righteousness. There is the faith. And James is in complete lockstep with this when he says, how do we receive this? We, we are given the implanted word that the salvation from God comes to us from God and not from anything else. And so Abraham has already been given his faith. And so now we move to Genesis 22, seven chapters later, where we see now that faith from Genesis 15 is being worked out into what? Action. Listen to this, Genesis 22, 11 through 12. This is just coming right at the, 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 this is like the climax of the story. So I just want to read this together so we get the sense of what's happening. Abraham's hand is up with the knife ready to plunge it into his son. The fire is getting ready to be kindled That is someone to be consumed by. The altar that God has said, you must give this to me. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, I can't imagine. He, here I am. He said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. What? Here we see fear again, a reverence for God, but also a deep, abiding faith. He knew that God had promised something to him. His faith was demonstrated by his willingness to trust God, even to sacrifice, because he believed that God was who he said he had, and he loved him, and he trusted him, and he was gonna act for him, knowing what, that he must be able to raise even his murdered son from the dead. That is the example he gives of what saving faith looks like. Now, verse 24, this is a place that can get a lot of attention because it seems that there's a clear contradiction now in the gospel regarding justification. Paul says in Romans three twenty-eight, and so this hang with me because I just, I'm going to touch this and go because this is why James has this in here, but I want to help us because some of us can get tripped up on this. But here's what's happening. Is Paul and James contradicting each other? Paul says in Romans 3.28, it's not going to be on the screen. He says that we are justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Uh Uh-oh. Oh, dear. It feels like it's complete opposite of what James is saying. Two things for us to note: Paul in Romans, and especially in Galatians, especially in Galatians, he is fighting back against teaching that says justification can be received, that you can actually do things to be accepted by God, that the means of salvation and justification, you can do things to earn God's salvation, that your justification is something that you can do. He's fighting. And primarily he's talking to Gentiles who are being taught this thing, and they're saying, like, listen, just obey the law and you can be justified. And Paul's going, No, 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 no. That is not what justification is. He says it's impossible to be justified by our works. Now, James, that's Paul. Here's James. James is writing to Jewish Christians whose faith is inactive. That's why he's giving examples people whose faith were active, he's saying they believe in God, but their actions aren't showing it. So James is defining justified. Now hear this. Here's the way. There's two separate meanings of justified here. If you hang with me, James defines justified as being shown as righteous and right standing. Shown. Shown. Your works show that you have been justified. Paul is writing and arguing against. He's saying justified is to be declared righteous. Therefore, right, that's why you can't earn that. You can't become declared righteous by what you do. That's not justification. But James, they're arguing two different places here on justification. That's why it can get really confusing at times. But This is why James is saying, coming back to what we're saying, James says works must accompany your faith. Paul says works cannot be the basis for your acceptance on God. Those are two different arguments being made for what justification is. And I do not believe there is any contradiction. I believe they are in perfect, perfect harmony with one another. And so then we move to the example of Rahab. Rahab was a non-Israelite prostitute. The contrast between Rahab and Abraham could not be more stunning or more stark. And I believe James does that so intentionally for you and me. He says in Joshua 2, he tells Rahab of the story of Rahab. She's hiding Israelite spies and she says to the men, quote, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For the Lord your God, he is God. She knows God, and he's the God of the heavens above and on the earth beneath, Joshua 2, 9 and 11. But what we find out, if you read the rest of the story, what did she do? She lied to the king, to the mayor of Jericho. She tells him, I don't know where the spies are, but she had hid them up on the roof. Why did she do that? Why did she risk her life On behalf of these Israelite spies. Why would Rahab do that? Because she had incredible faith in that God. In Yahweh. How did she show that faith? She spoke. She knew things about God. But she acted on that faith. Y'all... Rahab did not know that her life would be spared when she did this. She acted on the faith of trusting in the Lord Yahweh, the one God above heaven and on earth. She trusted him, and in her actions proved her faith. Abraham and Rahab are proclaimed just based on what they did, but the faith was already there. It was demonstrating what faith already was abiding within them by how They lived in the choices they would make. We can look at Abraham and Rahab, and we can see obviously he was justified in the Pauline sense. Look at how he lived and what he did. So God publicly proclaimed him just, and then James' sense of justified because of the way he lived out his faith. See, there's perfect harmony and understanding that faith always moves out into action. So I come to the question this morning, how do we know that we're saved. How can I know that I'm saved? James tells us we're saved by God through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection when our faith is accompanied by good works. Faith isn't alone. Saving faith knows our neighbors and loves them, goes towards them. Saving faith looks like knowing God but also loving God, moving out into action and so Okay, so I I just, I ask these following questions to each of you. If saving faith is shown by knowing our neighbors and loving them, where is your faith struggling to follow through with obedient works like this? Where might you be neglecting the needs of someone? We have a benevolence fund in our church. Do you know why we have that? Some of you probably know. We have a benevolence fund in our church because we, as a church, want to help one another who have needs, physical needs. See, you guys This is an encouragement to you in the midst of a deep challenge for all of us. You give your money to that. You give your time and your money. And our Benevolence Fund is what it is because we don't merely want to say, peace, be well. And you're sitting there struggling to pay a bill. Or something has happened in your marriage, or in your a health situation, or or, or me. so. What would that be like if we were simply to look at someone in our church and say, "Yes, I hear you. Be be, be well." I think sometimes what we do, huh, I'll pray for you. Uh oh, am I saying prayers bad? No. But can prayer be a way of bypassing the action that God wants us to take towards someone else? Where are you struggling with that? Where might you be struggling with that? Do you know your coworkers? Almost every one of us has a job. What does saving faith look like in the context of knowing the people that we work with? What's going on in their lives? Do you know what's going on? Are you aware of what's going on in their lives? Do you care what's going on in their lives? Do you somehow justify not caring for what's going on for them? I think James lays a very heavy challenge on us all to say, whoa, 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 hold on. What does saving faith look like in the midst of the context of our relationships with Christians and non-Christians? He gives the examples of in the church, Does that mean we aren't to love those outside of it? Of course not. We have opportunities every day to meet the needs of others. Every day. It can be as simple as helping a confused customer in your job. Do you ever think about that? Do you ever think, hey, this is encouragement to me that I realize that there's a saving faith. Yes, I know you're paid to do that customer care, but do you realize in your job or the contracts that you guys have, because we're all, most of us are government contractors or have a contract, like, hey, the way that you think about loving and satisfying your customer is a way of displaying the saving faith of God's grace in your life, not just that you get a paycheck, do you think in those ways? What does it say? You work under the Lord and that they would see your good works and do what? Give glory to the Father. And James urges us, there's no denying this. This is the second week in a row where he points us and says, do you have a special care for the poor and the marginalized? Do you judge them? You keep them at a distance because they look funny or they smell funny. Or they don't hold the same views as you or they're obnoxious or what? fill in the blank of whatever it is. Do we have a special regard and care for the most vulnerable people in our communities? These are questions that James, I think, lays heavy on us. And here's the encouragement that I want to give as we wrap this up. You'll know that you're saved because you'll bear fruit. The five-year-old asking, am I saved, Mom? The answer would probably be something like, hey, buddy, you believe in God? Yeah. You believe in Jesus that he died for you and then he rose again three days later? Yeah, yeah. That's awesome. Now, now go love the way he loves. You'll know you have saving faith. So for you, Grace Hill, take note. Where do you see that in your life today? Where do you see fruit bearing in you that your faith is indeed not a useless faith, but a saving faith, that Christ does dwell within you? What are the things that you do that shows the love of other people, that shows the way God loves you is the way you love other people? And I know in this church, because I see it all the time and you guys are doing it, take note of those things and give God thanks. But let us not be content lest we fall into the danger of then moving into a time saying, peace be with you at a distance. But would we be people that consistently, consistently model, not perfectly, not perfectly, but consistently model God's grace to those around us. Where do you see gentleness and patience and self-control? Where do you see those friends? You see the saving faith and the work that God has done in your life. Be encouraged. Saving faith isn't merely showing people, though, that we just give to them or what they need. Our actions, our love, those are important. Our compassion shows what's already in our hearts. Say that again. James, Paul, Everything in the scriptures point to the works are not the end. They are demonstrations of what already exists. God's love dwells within us. The grace of God, the salvation of God is in us. And so through the way we live, we demonstrate what's already there. So love and compassion come forth consistently in your life and in my life. A heart that is saved by God will live for God and that saving faith bears the fruit of good works. Father, I just thank you for I thank you for this word, Lord. It's, just, it's heavy. It's hard. God, I I know it's a tension for us to wrestle with and the one that I believe you've given us and that James lays out so so clearly that we could see two examples of what useless faith is and what saving faith is. And so God, I pray, Lord, that you would mark this church by continued pursuit of living out our faith. Father, that our love for those around us would be evident because we do works, not because works save us, but because works demonstrate that we've already been saved, God. that we would indeed be a diverse community who loves Jesus and lives for Jesus and is safe to be known, God. So Lord, we just confess to you the areas where our lives don't match what we believe. God, may we heed the warning of James to us. And Lord, may in turn we see that as also a deep encouragement as well. Lord, would we help spur each other on as we live in community with one another, to stir one another up to love and good works and to encourage each other daily, knowing that the faith in us is one that's meant to be demonstrated to a world that so desperately needs Jesus and his love and grace and mercy and his salvation, Lord. So Father, I'm, I'm so proud of this church. I'm so proud of your people, God, who are trusting you in this way. Not perfectly, God, but we consistently strive to be a people that demonstrate the faith that we have because of Jesus. And so, Lord, would you just continue to give us favor in that? Would you continue to give us strength to persevere in that? Lord, would you give us the means and the ways to look at each other and encourage each other when we see them and say, brother, sister, I'm so grateful, I'm so proud, I'm so encouraged, I'm so challenged by how you demonstrate your love for Jesus in this way. World and in this church. That's so, what I'm thankful. We get to do that together. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.